Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Mark Heilman, who is the lead guitarist for the legendary California-based deathcore outfit Suicide Silence. Over a long and uh, prosperous career, Mark's put out six albums with Suicide Silence, hitting the rock billboard charts in the U.S., the U.K., Germany, and Australia, among many, many others. It's got a very impressive career, and when I think of bands doing it the right way, I feel like his band did it the right way. They were known before they were signed. When you hear about all the right things you need to do before getting a record deal or a team, his band did it. And it's very interesting to talk to someone who actually has that kind of experience. So let's get on with it. Mark Heilman, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. What the fuck is going on? Something I've always wanted to like uh, talk to one of you guys about bands would get big before they got signed, which is how I learned that it should happen, but it's uh, actually pretty rare. You know, usually bands get signed and then labels just shit them out and hope that something happens, but you guys had it going on. It was like you guys and Joffrey Cowboy and then eventually Whitechapel all just kind of had it going on before label the label thing happened. What made you like decide to even sign like why did you need to? We were children, you know, well, we didn't know what we were doing at that point. You know, I think if I could go back in time and like communicate with myself, I probably would have been like, hey, you know, you could, you could probably do this all yourself at this point, or at least for some more years, build it up. It was MySpace at the time. MySpace acted as this huge platform that you could put music out and you could be, you know, literally all over the world so easily. And for us, at least, I say this, and I'm pretty sure it's true. I think that Suicide's, because it was before I was in the band, and I watched this happen. Suicide Silence was the first band to put a music video on MySpace. So the Family Guy clip and them playing at the Showcase Theater, I think that was the first music video ever on MySpace, which is really what catapulted the band to having like a worldwide recognition for anything. And uh, why we signed, I think it's like, you know, you're young and for us, Century Media was interested in us. And it's like, you know, I was I was a fan of Century Media. I used to order from the Century Media, you know, uh, whatever catalog when I was young. So like having them offer us anything was just super awesome. So it's kind of like, you want to sign a deal, you know? I don't know. I don't know. You just, when you're young, you're like, why not sign the fucking deal? We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. What was it about you guys that made you think that it could work before the label? Like you just said, a lot of bands, you'd know about them on the internet, but they wouldn't do anything. Like what was different about you guys? All it was with us was that we had like a hundred percent drive to work. We knew we wanted to get in the van. We wanted a tour. We also wanted to smash the the label of being a MySpace band. When you're labeled a MySpace band at that time, it's just like... There was a stigma. Yeah. It's like, hey, no, like we play a shit ton of shows local and like we are a real band. Like we just happen to be on MySpace just like every other band. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got offers to go play in the UK in 2006. We had no idea what we were doing, but we were like, yeah, well, let's buy tickets and let's bring... You know, our 5152s will like literally we brought our heads with us to like our first tour in the UK, had no idea what we were doing. 
And and that pretty much we were just we, we were just out there to just do it, you know, just go play any show we possibly could. We started the network, started to just meet people. That's where we met Ash Avildsen, who owns Sumerian. He was our first booking agent in the U.S. We went and saw Reflux, which was uh, Tosin Abasi's first band. Uh, and Ash. Ash's band, too. Ash was the singer. We went to go see them play to talk to Ash to see if he would be our booking agent. I want to say that that was, that was 2005 or maybe early 2006. Yeah, I mean, we were just in it to like see who's working and see who's putting together. It was the scene wasn't really like thick yet. Like it was just getting started. There was there was bands from Orange County like bleeding through and Atreyu and that was that scene. But like our scene, which was just more brutal, like we we could see it. We saw it was it was coming up all over the world. There was there was different things going on, and we're just like we gotta. We just got to hit this super hard. And I mean, I dropped out of high school. I was in high school at that time. I was just like, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go play, gu- Doing play it. guitar and yeah, put all my money into it. Literally anything that I, if I ever worked or ever made a dollar, everything was going to the band or gear. It was just like everything. So you guys had the collective idea of getting as far as humanly possible. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm just saying, cause some bands don't admit that. I think some bands are like, we're just in it because we love music. We don't care about that kind of stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes musicians won't admit that. But anytime I talk to people who have made it happen, it's pretty clear that that's what they wanted from the beginning. Yeah. Like, I think it was everybody kind of had their own personal goals as far as like making music a career, you know, and everybody still kind of has their own, you know, this is what I want the most. Um, for me, like, I remember just kind of discussing it. I remember, I mean, talking to Mitch, like having this conversation with him, because uh, I had only been in the band for not even a full year once we started, like, getting, you know, offers to go on tour and do all kinds of stuff. And it was like this conversation of like, hey, like, you're really, you're, you're in this, like, you're not going to quit, like, when it gets to be too much work, you know, like, because we want to, we want to do this for the rest of our lives. And I'm just like, dude, like, this is, this is all I want to do. And I, and talking about all I care about is being able to pay my bills. I don't need to be rich. I don't even need to be famous. I just want to be able to survive just off of music. I was 18 when we really started uh, touring a lot. How long did it take before you could survive just for music? Well, we ate shit for probably from 2006, 2007, 2008, half of it. We were finally at the point where we were able to not be reinvesting like all of our money. Could you describe eating shit? Like, what does it taste like? No, I'm just kidding. It depends what the person was eating before, uh, you know, if, 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 <laughs> yeah, if, if, cause there's varieties. Yeah. You know, if they have a nutrient dense diet, you know, it could actually be pretty flavorful. <laughs> Let's say we would go out on tour for like, we used to tour insane. So we would tour like three tours back to back, not even joking. Like we would tour for like a hundred days and we would all, you know, agree to pay ourselves like like a, a thousand bucks for three months, you know, <laughs> cell phone bills, basically. Yeah. I mean, that that's like totally true, but it was because we, at the time, like we didn't, we still didn't really know what we were doing and we were like, we needed to, we had, we had to buy merch and like, we, it was all getting reinvested so that everything we were doing was just building up and building up. And then middle of 2008 was a year after the cleansing came out and we were touring so steady 
And then we finally hired a, a, a business manager and our business manager helped <laughs> us figure it all out. We finally were able to like do like monthly salary kind of thing and actually be able to live off of music. And I remember that being like a thing too. Everybody would ask us in interviews back in the day, like, do you guys work jobs or like, do you guys have anything else that you do? Or is this like all you do? And, and like, even that was like a stigma of being like a young band that had like success. It's like, wait a second, you, you only do this. You don't, you don't have to work. And like people in the scene, like almost guilt tripping you for like being successful. It's like, well, Hey man, we put our fucking time in, you know, that is kind of a weird thing in the metal scene. I've always wondered why that's looked down on. Cause the other scenes, like, you know, the hip hop scene or whatever, entrepreneurs and people who do well, that's like a badge of honor. Basically that's that the better you do, the better you're considered. But in metal, it's not exactly like that. Like, obviously, people look up to the bigger bands, like who doesn't look up to Slipknot or whatever, but there's still like a thing about if you do well, it can it can sometimes cause social problems. Like, there will be some guilt tripping and stuff. Yeah, it's unfortunate that like the way that metal is, it's kind of like if you're too cool, like you're not cool anymore. Like it's like you're cool when when you're 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 in like a smaller clique and you're on the underground. But it's like once you have too much success, especially in the U.S., like you're on to the next, the newer band that no one knows about, and they're cool because it's like your secret kind of thing. We saw that a lot, you know, when we were first coming up, and we still get it. Like. It's we we got the people that only like the cleansing or people that are like oh you guys are never going to be as good as your EP and it's just I think I think that echoes in it with every band like there's just those people all the way up to Metallica all they care about is kill them all you know just go listen to that record yeah it's always going to be there dude yeah it's always what I say you know with anybody that has anything you know to say about newer music by us or whatever it's like hey man like our old music's still on the menu you know you could still choose that <laughs> if that's what you want and that's also the funnier thing is we play we play live sets and and our old songs aren't even the songs that go over the best really it's usually black crown era stuff you can't stop me stuff we haven't even got to play any of our new records music live like at all hardly so we'll see how that goes but <laughs> Oh, just uh, for people listening, because, you know, people in the future will be hearing this. It's May 29th, 2020, so we're all locked down, so to speak. Oh, yeah, that's currently happening still. How's that been for you? I don't mind. I don't really mind. Yeah, I don't either. I stay productive. I like to, I like to sit at home and play guitar. I love getting cold call FaceTime calls from friends or like groups of friends where it's I look down at my phone, it's just like 20 people's names that I know and I'm like, "All right, cool, let's hang out." Like that's I would have been I would have been annoyed at that if I wasn't locked down. Like, why the fuck are all these people FaceTiming right now without like checking <laughs> to see what I'm doing? Like, but no, I mean, I've I've stayed busy. I've been getting more guitar lessons and giving guitar lessons and I started a Patreon and you know, having a lot of fun with that. And yeah, and then just the ideas that come from being on lockdown. Like we're doing this virtual world tour, which is going to be insane. Like, because everybody's, everybody's doing the live, live for the internet, like one stream only, you know, just tune in and this is, this is the stream. And then we were thinking like, how do we make this better? Like, how do we do this for specific people? Like make it more like a tour and we figured out how to, it's called geofencing, how to geofence a stream ticket so we can actually go on a, 
a multi-stop stream tour. So if you live in Dallas, we're going to sell a ticket that's geofenced in like a 200-mile radius to Dallas. And when we play this show, we're actually live playing for Dallas, talking about the last time we were there. This is just for you. It only exists once. And we're doing it for 39 shows. We're going to do all the shows that got canceled because of coronavirus first, which is U.S., a little bit of Canada, South America, some Europe and the U.K. and Asia. We're doing it time zone specific. So if you're in London, we're going to be playing for you at 7 p.m. And we're basically playing 7 o'clock like everywhere all over the world which is also what is missing from these streams. Some people are just streaming at, you know, noon their time, but that's, you know, yep. three in the morning in Asia or something. So for Australia, if you're doing Australia, you will be doing it in the middle of the night. We've actually already discussed it with the place that we're renting one location and we're doing it all from this soundstage, which we've got, we have a film crew and a film lighting crew. So we're, we're treating it more like a, like a live music video, live performance. It's not going to be like we're trying to recreate a concert. We're going to be making something super way more just suited for viewing on your computer. Hopefully you're plugging into a, a set of nice like studio monitors or a sound system because it's going to sound fucking sick. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we already talked with the place we're renting. We're going to be able to use it at any point in time. They love the idea and how we're doing this. It's Third Encore, which is like this massive rehearsal studio in Burbank where, you know, arena and stadium tours go to practice, set up their whole, uh, you know, lighting package and rehearse without going mm-hmm. to, the, to the venue. Um, Big boy rehearsal rooms, basically. Yeah, we're going above our pay grade in this uh, location here. And, and uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, punching up. I'm really excited about it because we've been putting so much energy into it. And like, if anybody, you know, knows Suicide Silence and knows us and just like the way we are, like, we're making, we're going to be taking over, like, uh, imagine it like Suicide Silence TV. Like we're gonna have pre-recorded skits that are more like like Mad TV or Saturday Night Live kind of stuff. That's that's Suicide Silence making all that. I, I I can't wait for people to see some of this shit. Like we already have made a bunch of them. They're so fucking funny. We uh, <laughs> can't say everything. We have fake sponsors, fake commercials, like all kinds of crazy shit. Dude, it's gonna be so fucking good. Like I was just I was just filming some stuff yesterday. We have a green screen and and we're just going insane with it. So for an hour and a half, we're just we're gonna be pummeling you with just hundred percent hilarious shit, super brutal, you know, performance by us. It's gonna look so good. And then and then we're doing a, uh, like a live Q and A for the second half of it, where we can actually anybody that's watching, we can actually. Uh, you know, video call them in and have them on the stream with us and answer questions. And it would have never happened if it wasn't for coronavirus. And and I'm thinking like, how much is this like Ready Player One situation happening right now? Like, is this the future now? Like, are we going to get, are we going to be able to just be like, hey, you know what? Like, we could go play, uh, you know, in in Gaza, but we could actually just uh, stream you a show now and you can, you could still enjoy this show, you know? Like... <laughs> So I have this theory about what's happening now is that it's just accelerating shit that was already going to happen. Like, for instance, movie theaters, they were already on the way out. It's not like they were doing well and then coronavirus happened and suddenly they're not. It's just shit that was already on the way out. Even Maybe it was going to take 10 years. 
it's just accelerating the process. And I think, uh, I'm sure you agree that bands probably tour a little too much. They wear down markets and they hit the same place way too often. And there's places you just can't go for, like you just said, Gaza, like you're not going to play a show in Gaza. So (laughs) not, not happening, but I'm sure you've got fans there. I really think that if it's successful, I could imagine bands, you could get international bands that are doing stream sets, but say you play anywhere remote, you know, far, you could get, you could put together a local package and then stream, you know, international bands with live bands from the area, you know, like it doesn't sound ideal at all. It's obviously kind of like a response to what's going on right now. But I mean, it's very possible you could put together something super entertaining and be streaming something that's just for that one night only that show. And especially if there's cameras on the crowd and then, you know, a you know virtual meet and greet kind of thing. It's exciting to, I mean, maybe more exciting to me because I'm just like neck deep and trying to figure out all this shit, but it's just super exciting. And it's just such a different, uh, a different thing. And fuck playing a social distance show. That seems like being a local band again. Yeah. Oh yeah. No one wants, no one wants to hang out. <laughs> Have you seen that meme of like local bands before coronavirus? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. Just out of curiosity, because I know I've talked to a lot of people whose tours and shit got canceled who are just depressed and acting like the world is over. And now we're talking to you and you're like actively been working on how to make the best of the situation, being creative about it. Obviously, you're stoked about it. How long was it between when shit went down and when you guys basically kicked into high gear to figure out how to make this work? Really, this whole virtual tour idea didn't come about until it was less than three weeks ago. That's pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, once we had the idea, we're like, we love this idea. The other odd thing about it is it's just this unique set of people that are in our crew that like, it just so happened that our sound guy of seven years uh, retired from touring for a little bit and worked on this massive live stream podcast. And then we also have a, a, a crew of people that did the Mitch Memorial DVD that are all film people. So like we have these people in our crew. So once we had the idea, it was like, oh shit. All right, let's think about this for like a day. And then we figured out, okay, this is possible. And we announced it like two days after we came up with the idea. And we've been, you know, on the daily putting it together. We didn't want to do quarantine streams from our jam room or like things from our bedroom and things like this. Because to us, and this is... It's kind of lame. I mean, it's cool for some styles of music. Kind of, but kind of, it's just... I don't know. I couldn't see it for a band that like is all about energy. Yeah. And I don't see it. We didn't want to kill that vibe that like when you come and see us live, like we smell brutal and we fucking and we look brutal (laughs) and like and we're fucking pummeling the whole shit. So like we just we were we were really hesitant on getting in on doing the streaming kind of stuff until we had this idea. And then it was like, all right, that fits the way that we we want to present ourselves. So um, it took us a while. It took us a little while. And we were getting a lot of people that were uh, hitting us up and asking us if we wanted to do certain uh, stream ideas of theirs. And there was always like, oh, you know, a 50% commission goes to us and all this stuff. And we're like, and I just kept thinking, I'm like, we have we have the know-how to do all this streaming stuff. We don't need to pay anybody. Like, how can we do this in-house? So 
eventually we just came up with this and we we've been going hard on it so it's going to be i guarantee it for anybody that that is even you know curious about it i guarantee it will be entertaining and something like you have never seen before in like a and as far as a stream goes cuz it's it's a fucking basically like a death metal deathcore band doing fucking a variety show i mean it's going to be fucking insane <laughs> I will say that only certain bands, I think, could pull it off because I'm sure you guys have seen lots of bands in studio videos where they're trying to be funny and it's like, maybe you should just stick to playing guitar. <laughs> but there's certain bands who have like the personality. Like, for instance, I think Black Dahlia could probably pull something off like that. They'd be amazing. Yeah, because they're funny and like bands with like personality could pull it off. But I think when you get bands that are just and this is not to judge their musical ability or ability as a band, because there's lots of great bands who are boring. Might not be like. <laughs> is that what you're trying to say? People, is that maybe. what you're trying to say? No, I'm just saying they're well, they're not like entertainers or like it's cool to listen to their music, of course. But uh, I don't I don't think I'd want to sit there and watch them on the internet making jokes it takes a certain type of personality well and that's also where we're filming all these skits and doing these really silly things like i'll give one away like we made a, a prop book and it's alex webster's dictionary and it says now with more syllables the 666th edition and it's dan kenny reading from the dictionary all these brutal words and just and and and, and like pronouncing them wrong and like he's he's wearing a wig and glasses and we're we're, we're filming them and we're literally sitting like we're getting done we're like this is either going to be hilarious or people are just going to think we're really stupid <laughs> like or both yeah i mean hopefully hopefully both you know we, i mean we are that's it we're, we're both we're 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 really stupid and and and, and really funny while we're doing it sounds like that's kind of like your mo historically is get an idea and then go fucking hard till it's like done basically oh yeah for sure i mean we're, we're definitely those kind of people. It's like, if you have the idea and everybody's on board with it, like we're going for it. You know, we're going to, we're definitely going to go for it. I, I'm, I'm all about ideas, high ideas. I'm just like, I want to hear anything you got that you want to <laughs> do and, and, and try. Like, I just like ideas. It's like anything that's going to fuel the, the creativity and get everybody working together, like, and just like keep the hive mind that is us, you know, rolling. Like, that's what I'm, I'm all about. Like until when the ideas run out is when I'm fucking done, you know? So you guys are like a hive mind type band? Unfortunately, yeah. We're this democratic band that it's like sometimes... That's so rare. Uh, it's so annoying too. Like, <laughs> Would you advise it to somebody like drop out of high school and just like go for it with your band? I would, but the only thing is, is I gotta, you gotta ask yourself like, are you fucking sick enough? Like... You know, like, are you badass or do you, or do you suck? Like, I would not advise it if you kind of have this inkling that you might suck. How do you know? <laughs> There's a lot of delusional people out there. How did you know? You have to be like delusional enough in yourself that like, yeah, I can fucking do this and I'm fucking cool and I can entertain people. Even, if, you know, you just got to convince yourself to do it. It's, I mean, as much as the, the fake it till you make it thing is a cliche to say, but it's like, you got to fucking go for it so hard. And, and a lot of it is kind of faking it until it actually, until it works out. Like, how do you know that was a good idea? Because generally dropping out of high school to pursue music is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. But school, school sucks. <laughs> yes, um, it was terrible. It's so, it's so God, shitty. It was so bad. 
Yeah, I could get I could get my GED or like whatever, but why? I came so close to dropping out. I got talked out of it, but God, I hated school so fucking much. Jesus Christ. It's terrible. I had like the smallest little bits of I was in local bands that we got newspaper articles and we actually drew a crowd and like even just like myself, like I was the dude. And like, I probably said this in other interviews, I was either selling you a bag of weed or I was selling you tickets to my show. And that was who I was. And everybody knew me as that. And I, and I knew it at a young age. And I'm like, this is who I am. This is what people know me as. And like, I already knew I had this kind of this, that's what I was going to do forever. I'm going to fucking be, well, hopefully not selling bags of weed, but selling tickets to shows. (laughs) I just kind of felt it at an early age that like, this is what's up. And I've said this story too. Like I went and saw Suicide Silence before I was in Suicide Silence. Uh, They were opening for, I think God forbid was this particular show. And I had seen their name around and they were already getting buzz as a local band. I went and saw them and I remember just seeing, I saw, I saw Mitch. I saw Mitch and I was like, whoa, dude, this guy has got it. You know, he's, he has like exactly what it For takes sure. to be, you know, a fucking rock star. And I didn't know I was going to be in that band, but that was 2003, I think. And two years later, when I saw that they were having tryouts, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll try out for that band. You know, I'll, I'll go for that shit. And then like once meeting them and that whole thing of having conver- literally having conversations with your bandmates of like, this is all we want to do. This is the only thing we're going to do. You know, we're, we're going to do everything that we have to do to make this successful you know, I just had never been around a group of guys like that before. So I, at, at that point, it was like, yeah, all right, I'm quitting everything and doing this. So what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, making it in a band or as a producer or entrepreneur, any of those things is really pretty unrealistic. It's not going to happen for most people. So we're kind of like in a unique group of people here who have made shit work. But as unrealistic as it is, I can tell you that like everything I've done that's worked out, even if it's seemingly improbable there in my mind there was always like a a logical path like it made sense perfect sense like this is definitely going to work i know it's going to work because i have like this evidence that it's going to work like i have all these things that have been happening that i can totally use as evidence kind of like you were saying like you were already getting that kind of attention before you joined the band like you already were uh known as like that person so you already kind of had that evidence, that data, basically, to like help you decide that it was not a stupid idea. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like, I wouldn't advise anybody to go too hard in it. It's it's such a shitty thing to say. Like, I still just give the advice of just like, dude, if you have it in you to do everything you possibly can to make this work, then you, I think that anybody can make it work. But on what level, you know, anybody can be in a band and, and, and be touring, literally, like you can put together a band and take your band on tour. Anybody can do it. It's super <laughs> easy to be broke. Ex- yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a level of making it and like success, though, that is like a disconnect from, I think, anybody that's looking at it from afar and or wants to be a part of it. You can go be in a touring band, but yeah, like actual success. It's like, dude, it's so hard. Like... Even Suicide Silence, like we still to this day, we we're, we're not we're not fucking loaded. We don't got shit tons of money. Like we have to work, you know, all the time to be able to just survive. You know, we're still that's still you know where where it is. And I think that that's pretty much how a lot of people's favorite bands are. You know, we're all still we still got to put in a lot of work and make this shit stay alive. 
it's not something I always tell people to uh, 100% pursue unless it's like, if you don't do it, will you regret it? Is is that is that it? You know, if you don't go for it, is it going to be like, you know, the reason why you're fucking miserable for the rest of your life? Well, I think I know a lot of people who are miserable because they didn't go for it, but they also didn't go for it because they didn't have it in them to do everything possible. So it's kind of like fucked if you do, fucked if you don't. Everyone who experiences success was that I know of, except for like a couple of weirdos that got lucky, which is super rare, like super, super rare. I know a lot of people on the outside think that a lot of people just get lucky, but that's fucking rare shit. Everyone that I know was willing to die for it, basically kind of did what you did, just said, fuck everything else. This is what's going to happen. Doesn't matter what I have to give up for it, this is what has to happen. And I think that a lot of people just are not willing to do that. And yeah, maybe they turn 35 and they are miserable that they didn't do it. But I kind of feel like if they had it in them to do it, they would have done it, right? Because everyone who does it says they had no choice. They had to. Right. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, that's why I quit making music and started doing business because I'm better at business than music. But yeah, uh, the way I got my band signed was totally through logic. I just read what it took to get signed to a major label. I studied it. I studied a bunch of major label bands, found a pattern, and then repeated the pattern. Exactly. And it worked? And it worked, yeah. Got signed to Roadrunner. It it worked to a T. I just studied like a bunch of major label bands and was like, I'm in a death metal band. I want to get on Roadrunner. What does it take? So who are the people that I need to influence? Who are the people who influence the people I need to influence? What kind of numbers do I need to push in order for them to pay attention? What kind of things does the band have to do for them to consider it legit? Like, it's just like checking off all the boxes and uh, it worked, but it didn't ever have that kind of energy that you're talking about. Like, public was never ready for it it worked because uh i calculated it like a business move but like i said i think i'm better at business than music which is why i do business now (laughs) you can totally get signed and get agents and managers and all that but if the public's not ready doesn't fucking matter yeah 100 percent. nothing's gonna happen yeah i think that that kind of when it comes down to being super good at business like you're saying it's like you're kind of forgetting probably a lot of the the points that it's like it's entertainment and like you can be yep. super good with business but at the same time it's like can you entertain can you can you get on stage and 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 t- turn any crowd of people into a fan of your band is like that that's that's what matters most with being in a band it's like impressing people that's far more important because uh if you can do that then you can get the right team and you're good it's far more important to have that charisma. That's always where I came from with music, was just like, put me on a fucking stage and give me a guitar and let me just get fucking wild and I'll fucking, I'll, I'll make sure everyone has a good fucking time. The business side of it was always, I mean, I, st- I still, I, I, I used to say it so much. It's like, all I want to do is play guitar. I don't want to fucking make any decisions or do anything. And it just, it doesn't work that way. Like nowadays, I feel like the future of people that are professional musicians there, they have to have the business side of it down and they have to be good and they have to, to some degree. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. To, I mean, to, to some extent, but it's also, I think the love, like the passion for what you're doing, like is still, 
I've been saying that since 2007, 2008. Remember just like we were meeting people touring with, you know, Mudvayne and bands that were a part of the massive side of the music industry before it arced and fell apart and talking to them about like contracts and amount, am- amounts of money that they used to, to hear. And then like, I would be like, oh, well, like, <laughs> this is what we're, our contracts look like. And they're just like, wow, you know, that's what's happening now. <laughs> you have to love playing your instrument or being in your band so much now. And, and, and you have to accept that it's just like, you know, that it's not what it used to be. And if you understand the business well enough, you can find the places where you can kind of pinch the pennies and put it together and make it all work. And you have to be so creative with it all now. It's just, it's a whole, it's a whole new world with, it's like, this is the extension of your creativity and business minds manifesting into this whole new experience. And it's, this is influencing the next generation of people of how they're going to, you know, have their multiple platforms and bands and how they're going to do it. It's like, you can't just be in a band anymore. You got to do so many things to make it all work. Sounds though, like you're enjoying that side of things. Like the way you were talking about the tour, the streaming tour, like doesn't sound like you're not enjoying it or anything. Oh, dude, no way. I'm probably like overly positive about life. It's true. I've, I've just had like so much fucked up shit happen. I mean, like, you know, Mitch dying is one big thing. There's a ton, there's a ton of other things that have happened in my life that it's just like, I've had so many bad things that taught me such huge lessons that now it's just like, I'm down with all of it, dude. Like I'm down, I'm down to make anything work and, and try to turn a fucking pandemic into something awesome or turn fucking, you know, a close friend dying into, uh, you know, an epiphany, you know, so like anything that goes on, I'm all about the idea. What's the idea that comes from this situation? Because there's going to be more fucking terrible shit that happens in all of our lives. And that is inevitable. And and you got to accept that shit. If you think that fucking life is going to be easy, your life's going to be fucking terrible. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're in for it. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. And I think that it's, it's hard to sh- just tell someone like, you know, just, just be happy or just enjoy what's going on. It's hard to tell someone to do that. Like you kind of really have to learn to learn that. But, um, over the years, yeah, I've really figured out how to not be such a fucking dismal fuck (laughs) and just remember that, you know, Hey man, like you play guitar and you can hang out with your friends on a podcast in different areas of the world and hang out. So like, just be happy about that shit and fucking write some sick riffs. Well, did you used to be a dismal fuck? Like, is this something that you taught yourself or are you just wired happy? No, I think I was always pretty, like, I was always into being positive and not really liking when people are, like, dwelling on on negative shit. But I think that for a portion of my life, a lot before Mitch passed, I wasn't that open about, you know, being positive. It wasn't something I would be, I would want to talk about and, like keep that positive positivity flowing. Cause it's like being in a, in a heavy metal, death metal, death core, whatever kind of band. It's like, it's not exactly the area where everyone's <laughs> happy, go lucky and fucking having a great time. Like, I, I feel like I had to relearn and re kind of, uh, you know, assess who I am. I don't know. I think I started to just kind of talk to people more and like try to be there for people more as opposed to just kind of worrying about myself and kind of saying, fuck everyone kind of thing. I was kind of anti like the world at a, for a long time. And I, I just, I, I kind of, yeah, I had to teach myself, you know, I, I wholeheartedly endorse healthy psychedelic therapy. 
I don't think people need to like go and, and drop acid every day. But like, if you can find the right group of people and you know, you're all on the same page and have some sort of situation where it's like, Hey, I want to like, I want to heal some shit in my life right now. Like, yeah, dude, eat some mushrooms and go out in the forest and like figure your shit out straight up, you know? And I feel like there's been a couple of times in my life where I've had these like major, you know, for lack of a better term, like come to Jesus type situations where it's like, and definitely I'm not, I'm not a Jesus dude. You look like him though. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not, but well, Jesus, Jesus is a pretty good dude. He, he, you know, the white, the white Jesus, the one that looks like me, he's a pretty, he's a, he's a good looking guy. You know, um, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus was not white. Let's just face it. Jesus wasn't white. Definitely not. <laughs> what I'm saying for me. Yeah. Like I, I've had a couple of situations that like the drugs told me not to do drugs and not to drink so much anymore. The drugs told me to fucking be nicer to myself and be nicer to everybody. And like that, that has transformed me into a much happier, more sober, healthy person. Cause I used to be a fucking mess. Like we were talking about before, you know, we, we got into the rest of this. I used to be a goddamn mess. So I'm sure you've seen those memes, like when the drugs tell you not to do drugs, you know, like that's to that totally happened to me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> do you think that when a band is starting and like is super driven like say the early days should they all drop acid together no 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 not that <laughs> i was thinking I more do you think that that fuck the world attitude kind of kind of helps drive it though like do you think it's kind of necessary maybe to kind of be a bit of a killer to some degree there's yeah to some degree i think for sure you kind of got to be out for blood in a sense when it comes to like destroying you know every band in your scene and like being the best you could possibly be i think a healthy amount of competition in that sense is pretty good when you're first starting but i think the longer you get into it the longer you realize that the more you compete the the more you know probably the person or the bands or the artist that the only competition they have is themselves. I think they're the ones that are going to be the best. I think that's a maturity thing, which is hard to have when you're 18. Oh yeah. Well, that's what, yeah. When you're 18, yeah. you know, destroy everybody, yeah. <laughs> be the coolest, be the heaviest, fuck the most chicks. That's my advice. <laughs> Good advice. Well, what did you focus on when you were younger? Because, I mean, dude, you guys are heavy as fuck. You had to focus on something. There's no way that, like, heavy-ass tone like that just happens randomly. Like, even if you just focused on being heavy as fuck, that's still something. I hated the world. I, I was just trying to express my pure hatred for all of human beings and, and mankind. <laughs> and it, And I think I succeeded a little. And, no, <laughs> the thing is, is that my upbringing in music was so... It was it was it was eclectic. It was really weird. My dad was a jazz guitar player. My sister played saxophone. My mom loved you know pop music, Journey and '80s metal. And I you know I was always drawn to like heavier stuff. My I really you know I loved Sabbath and Ozzy at a really young age. And what I was you know focusing on when I was young was understanding you know, what people were doing when they were writing music, trying to understand composition of just the the coolest shit to me, whether it was Metallica or Pantera or Ozzy, like, how did they come up with this song? And why does this make sense? And how, like, structures and also at the same time, just sick licks, like, what's fucking what are those? What, how do I play those sick ass licks? Like, how do I how do I make it sound the way they're making it sound? 
I was, I was so much of an emulator of my favorite players trying to get my vibrato to sound like dime bags or try to get my, my taps to sound like Eddie Van Halen or Randy Rhodes. So like being able to emulate, you know, the artists that I liked the most was really where, where I started as, as a young guitar player. When I play Master of Puppets, I want to sound like Metallica. When I play uh, Cowboys from Hell, I want it to sound like Dimebag. You know, being able to emulate these, these the, my favorite players, that was really where I focused on. And like my dad would be able to teach me how to play that stuff because he was, he was such a freaking awesome guitar player. And quickly I learned that, you know, I could focus on learning, you know, all my modes and, you know, practicing all my scales and all this stuff. But if I was going to go play with people, especially when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, most people you're playing with, they're not learning that kind of stuff. So then once I started joining bands, what I really focused on was how to collaborate with people. How do I be a good band member? How do I take what this guitar player is playing in front of me? And how do I make it even sicker? How do I help him be a better player? How can I get him to help me be a better player? Just by you know, actually working with them, not try to outshine anybody or try to be better than anybody. Just try to actually work with the musicians that you're playing with. So, yeah, I mean, I studied music. I played French horn and played trumpet. And, you know, I, I learned to read music at a pretty young age before I ever picked up the guitar. But pretty quickly, I learned from playing in bands that, you know, none of that stuff even really matters that much it just matters can you write a sick riff and can you write a sick song and can you be a good band member yeah totally sounds like you focus on the right shit <laughs> well i'm sure i'm sure that you encountered a lot of people who were like sitting there focusing on scales all the time or playing as fast as possible like that kind of stuff most guitar players i knew growing up were like that's what they were trying to do they weren't focused on learning how songs work and why something sounds really cool that whole side of things are more about how fucking fast can i play i want to be faster than everybody yeah there was still an element of i wanted to be faster than everybody but <laughs> i feel like i was really lucky with again luck Try, talking about luck um I, I, I don't even really believe in luck i'm very fortunate that my dad was such an experienced guitar player and studied music and he was able to tell me my dad studied jazz for eight years and he knew he, he he's like, like, like Wes with music, you know, just like, so just, he just knew it all. And, uh, he told me, he's like, you could study music and do all know everything, but like, you could still never be able to write, you know, a song that would connect with people. You don't have to know everything about music to write, you know, a sick tune. And but also at the same time, there's not really a formula to being a hundred percent punk rock about it either. Otherwise, like every shitty singer with a decent philosophy and good idea would be like as big as Bob Dylan. <laughs> there's no one hundred percent like protocol to being a hundred percent punk rock, rock and roll, or being a hundred percent studious, educated musician. There's not a hundred percent way to make it all happen. There's kind of got to be, you know, this this is this makes me think about this. A lot of like guitar players, especially ones that aren't that good and famous, not good, famous guitar players, they say, you know, like, this guy's my favorite. They exist. They exist. A lot of people think, you know, I'm one of those people. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they'll, they'll say, you know, these guys are my favorite players because they were sloppy and they're not, it wasn't perfect. And, you know, everything they played was, you know, just them and all this. But what, like, a lot of these guys don't mention is like, 
whoever they're talking about, whatever player that was sloppy and, you know, had their own personality, that player probably sat in their room and found a certain thing that they were really good at that they could fucking make sound really awesome. And that became their thing. Like they found something they loved about their playing and they exploited it and made that their thing. And like a lot of these guys, they don't talk about, it's like, they still practiced, they still put in the time to be, you know, their own player and have their own style, but they figured out what it was that was good about their playing, what made them so special. And I'm so tired of hearing people talk about, oh, this guy, because he was sloppy and fucking real. It's like, so what, dude? There's a shit ton of fucking sloppy and real guitar players out there. It's just like, give some sort of reason why that makes sense for this person. You know, it's just like, it seems like too many people talk about this kind of thing without giving any insight to a young musician of like, well, so wait, are you telling me that I can be sloppy and I can just play like shit and, and it'll be cool? It's like, no, like you got to find your own shit, like your own style of slop. Like you got to figure out what that is. Yeah, those players are not great because of their slop. It's despite their slop. Their unique voice or whatever it is artistically that they're doing is so good that the slop doesn't matter and might even add character. But if they didn't have that unique voice, they'd just be sloppy ass guitar players. Totally. Do it. Do you sit down and just write every day and either it's cool or it's not? Or is it goal oriented? Like the band's going to record an album. So I need to come up with at least ideas for 10 songs or like, how do you go about it? Suicide Silence, when it's time to write, we all come together and we write together. And if there's things that people bring to the table, then they bring it that they wrote on their own. But yeah, I write. I write all the time. You know, I got some stuff that I want to work on today. I try to work on stuff every day. It's sometimes I get stuck in like a, not stuck, but sometimes I'll have like a day of just practice where it's just like, you know, damn, I was playing guitar for seven hours yesterday and I didn't write anything. If I'm not coming up with shit that I like within the first 30 minutes, I will probably stop the writing session for the day. I know when I'm on a good one and I'm not thinking about it too hard and it, and shit starts to fly. I look at writing music and practicing almost in the same kind of thing. You know, I practice guitar every day and I try to come up with like at least a riff, at least something just, just to always keep it flowing. I've always wanted to write a 60 second song for a day like until you can't do it anymore, you know, just as like an exercise. I've always wanted to do that. The other thing is I play music. Like I've, I sing, I write weird shit, dude. No, that's also on my Patreon too. If you want to go onto my Patreon and join my riff journal and listen to the, to the shit that like I'm afraid to show people because it's like, this is not metal and this is really fucking weird <laughs> shit. Like I got some outsider music. What is outsider music again? I know what that is. What is that? Someone's told me about this. Outsider music is uh, music made by people who are not really a part of society. They don't like go by any of the rules, like tuning in a certain way. Okay, no, it's not outsider music. <laughs> it's like they'll be like from the for like. There's this one band, outsider music band that came from like the mountains in West Virginia, and they had no contact with the outside world. And their songs were always like super out of tune but they were always out of tune the exact same way so they just heard it that way which is really weird to people who are used to hearing things in tune the way that we hear them it sounded totally off but every single time they played it it was exactly the same so obviously it was intentional so yeah outsider music is 
outside of society, basically. I'm not that outside of society. I think I'm still a part. I think I'm still human. Oh my, I'm, I guess I'm human. My stuff that I, I write that isn't just guitar. I have a charango, which is like a, a different kind of lute. It's like a 10 string lute from South America that I really like to play. And yeah, like I've always been afraid to share like my actual singing because I play in a fucking death metal band or death core, whatever you want to call it. And like me doing any kind of clean singing or anything like that is stuff that it's just like, I only want to share that with people that are, that like really want to see this side of me, you know, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's other, there's other aspects of my, yeah. of my music that I'm just like, you know what? The world ain't ready for that shit. The world don't want that shit. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, I, I'm not, I, I don't know about that. I think George Harrison said that you got to write the first 150 shitty songs to get to the good ones. I kind of agree. I think, that the more you create stuff, the higher the probability is that you're going to come up with something cool. I think that people who write very sparingly, they better be a genius because they're not giving themselves very many chances to come up with something sick. But if they make it part of like just a daily ritual, just I'm going to make something, there's just way more chances. I, I just, I think a lot of people just don't do the thing they want to do enough to come up with cool stuff. I think with most good writers there's like a huge chunk that's crap always i doubt that there's too many people who like a hundred percent of their ideas are usable totally yeah i've always kind of looked at myself as like i'm no virtuoso i'm just another dude playing music you kind of have to look at what you're creating you know from an outside perspective and be able to admit like that sucks or like this is not how i want to represent myself you know before we wrote the Black Crown, we wrote almost an entire record and, and tossed it. Just weren't feeling it? We knew it wasn't what our third record needed to be. You know, we, we, had, we had written two records. You know, we saw the progression and we wrote seven songs or eight songs. And we did it all in about a month. And we took some time off. And then in that time off, like I talked to everybody candidly in the band. It was like, hey, is this, do, do you like this? Is this really what you know, is this, this the direction we want to go? And pretty much everybody said the same thing, but they didn't want to say it when we were all together because it was like we had all worked on it so much, you know? And it's just like, we all just decided like, no, well, let's, let's toss all this and start, start from the top. So I'm all, I'm all about that. I think that that's a rookie mistake, man. Not what you're saying. I think a rookie mistake is sticking with the same songs too long and not being afraid to toss shit. I, I think that one of the best things you could possibly do is be comfortable tossing things out that just aren't on par for whatever reason. I guess you had to get through those seven or eight shitty songs to get to Black Crown. Yeah. But the fact you were willing to throw them out, it says everything. It was risky, dude. It was super risky because, I mean, not everybody agreed with or like in our in our circle, you know, showing it to our manager, showing it to, you know, people in our circle. Everybody, you know, said it was good. You know, they liked it, but it's like, for us, it was just like, no, nah, like we got to do something better. And admittedly, we went and we stayed up in a cabin in Big Bear, California. We got a cabin to write in. We built a, home, a studio and we stayed there for a month and we wrote music. And it took that time in the cabin to write those songs. But I think what it did for us as friends and as a band was what we needed because we then learned that it's like we can write something and, you know, admit that it sucks and not make it have to be what it is. Because at that point, really, everything we had written basically 
had made it onto every single one of our records. You know, like what we wrote for The Cleansing was what we recorded on The Cleansing. What we wrote for No Time to Bleed is what we put on it. So when it came to that, it's like, all right, we've done this before. You know, we got to know each other even better as 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 a band and as as people. So we still talk about it, you know, like we needed that time in Big Bear to learn more about what it is to be happy with what we're creating. Yeah, and I guess nobody on the team can actually know artistically. It, like only you can know if it's not really good enough. The people creating it are the ones who will have the feeling of, yeah, I'm sure it didn't suck, suck. I'm sure that like it would have been decent. Like I doubt that they were horrible songs. It just sounds like it wasn't on the level that you wanted it to be. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is I bet we still have that drive somewhere. We can go back and listen to all those right now so we could actually be the judge of it. I, I've actually, I haven't <laughs> thought about those tracks in a while. I wonder where they are. <laughs> Dude, there's some really funny shit we did up there in the cabin too. We wrote a rap song. <laughs> we, we, have, we have a whole entire rap song. My lyrics were the ingredients to a, the cereal box that I had, and I just wrapped them in a certain syllabical way. It was when Chopped and Screwed was super big, like the Three Six Mafia stuff, and I think Mitch was doing like this Three Six Mafia, like low-tuned fucking Chopped and Screwed voice. Some weird shit happened up there. We needed that shit. It is definitely up to, you know us as the people that are making it it's like if you've written the music and you don't get inspired for that to be shared with people and you know show where yeah, you, where, where you, you got to represent for the next two years exactly this is who i am like i remember i remember really not feeling it i remember just being like no like i really hope that this that this isn't this isn't what it's going to be and i still get that feeling you know when we write music if there's any of that little bit of feeling it's like no 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 like i'm 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 either chucking this whole thing out or i'm rethinking this entire thing and i'm going to make this better which, you know, that's, that's still, that's still my process. You know, I have so, I just, I'll riff and throw things down so much. And probably for me, it's like one in you know, 20 ideas are the things that end up being used for suicide silence. It's like a lot of my stuff, it's just, you know, I need it. I need it in my process to just get it out and be able to weed out where I'm going and what, what I think is going to be fucking sick. I'm a less is more dude. Like I love shred and I love technical stuff, but I'm all about coming up with the thing that's just like, I want guitar players to listen to it and go, damn, why didn't I think of that? That's where I'm at all the time. I'm just curious, when you ditched all those songs and then you started working on the batch of songs that did make it, what was different? Like in the vibe or like in the approach, like what changed? So instead of, because we were all living in the same house and waking up and working on music together, instead of trying to get a song to happen while everyone was together. What me and Garza did, our other guitar player, we would meet up usually, you know, maybe two days a week that we weren't with the band and we would just come up with riff ideas and we would label the riff idea. We would name it something, you know, we would name it like, oh, this is the Morbitalica riff or this is the, the Pantera breed or like whatever it kind of reminded us of. We would label it, name it and have a relationship with the, with the riff and we'd be like, is this an intro? Is this a verse? Is this a chorus? Is this a bridge? We would start figuring out what, like, where do we see this in this? And before we even would structure music, we would start just having, building a relationship with the, with the, the, the riffs and the ideas. Maybe it would even be three riffs in a row. We're like, okay, this is definitely an intro. I've never heard anyone say that, building a relationship with the riffs. Could you elaborate on what that means? So when you have, like, you have a relationship with riffs that you love to play that are other people's songs, you know, like, you know, for me, first time I ever played in an arena, 
you know, and I'm at a sound check and I'm like, oh man, like I get to play in an arena. I get to sound check right now. I'm thinking about what riff do I have like an arena relationship with? What riff is the riff I want to play when I am playing in an arena, you know? And honestly, I don't really remember what it was. It was probably like Dead Skin Mask or like South of Heaven or something like this, like a big, like epic opening fucking riff, you know? Um, But like the relationship that you have with your own riff, where am I playing this? What is it doing when I play it? How do I feel about it? You know, what do I want people to feel when I'm playing this riff? Like, that's what I mean by a relationship with the riff. It's just this riff right now. There's no drums yet or anything. It's just an idea. But what is it going to be? And how do I see this being a part of me forever if this becomes a song? Yeah, I've never heard. I've never really heard it described that way. But it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's the power of the riff is what fucking matters in metal. So it's like if you're writing a riff, like it's that riff, but like it's got to stand alone. Like you strip away the whole entire song, the drums, the vocals, everything. Can that guitar riff be played by itself and have people be like, all right, that's sick. That's trying to build that fucking pyramid of, of, a, of a riff that's going to exist forever. You know, that's definitely the way that I try to approach writing a riff always. I, I try to have a relationship with it where it's like, I want somebody to, I want someone to listen to this and this be their first riff they ever learn. I want someone to play, I want someone to listen to this and be like, I want to play guitar because of that riff, you know? And it could be something as simple as, you know, I think like unanswered. It's the stupidest riff. It's literally just going 2-1 open, 2-1 open. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. But it's so stupid that it works that any anybody that's never played guitar, they're like, you know what? Damn, I want to play that chunk, chunky, stupid, heavy-ass riff. I was just uh, feeling that way about the opening riff to two steps. That that riff's crazy. Yeah, yeah, like that's that's the that's kind of the building building the pyramid. You know, build build that thing that's gonna last forever, and people are gonna look at it and be like, damn, who built that? When you're working with another guitar player. How does it work that you guys come up with a riff together and not have it be just like noise? Because, you know, like two guitar players, metal guitar players in a room with high gain amps, low tune guitars coming up with stuff. It can be pretty chaotic and hard to come up with stuff. I think that's why a lot of people like to write metal alone because it's just it's so noisy and like hard to hard to focus. How do you guys like connect in a way that that's actually productive and gets to those riffs you know i think plain and simple it has come down to years of uh of chemistry that we've developed it's not something that comes that comes overnight you know and like me and garza there's definitely like a left and a right side of one single brain that is the the guitars of suicide silence i'm more the technical side he's more the simple side i will play something maybe we're not necessarily playing together but um i'll play something and then he'll grab it and make it even more this is the meat and potatoes of what you just did let's try doing it like this you know, and he simplified so many things that I that would have been way overcomplicated and made something where it's just like it doesn't need to be, you know, that far out. And then also on the other side of things, you know, maybe Garza's playing something. It's like, hey, dude, if we, you know, add these couple little dilly dallies right here, it's going to fucking grab on. You know, it's going to it's going <laughs> to, you know, hey, you know, whatever, whatever the fuck, dude, you know, I'm dude. And especially when I'm writing music, like whatever language I'm speaking, it just turns into fucking flibbity flobs and fucking dirgats and just weird shit. <laughs> I feel like writing with another guitar player 
it's still, it's again, back to what I, when I first started playing in bands, it's like, I want to listen to what you're doing and make it more what you're trying to do. Like, I, I, I want to get to the understanding of like, maybe the same thing, trying to build a relationship with that riff. Like you, you are trying to do something right now and maybe I can help you relate to what you're trying to do better. And, and that's, that's always, that's always what I've tried to do with, with Garza or anybody that I'm playing with. That's almost approaching it like a producer. Oh yeah. I mean, and that's, I think from working on records with producers, I love working with a producer. You know, I love getting, having someone, you know, almost like a, like a psychoanalyst of music. They're sitting there with you and trying to figure out how to, how to make you a better you. That is the coolest thing. And I try to do that with, you know, the whole band. I think everybody tries to do that in our band. Everybody's trying to, it's like, I know how Dan Kenny is on bass and I want to make Dan Kenny like the sickest bass player ever. And I know how Garza is on guitar and I want to make him like the sickest Garza guitar player there is. And, uh, you know, to Eddie on vocals, everybody, it's just how do we amplify exactly who you are and make you, again, build the relationship that you have with your instrument and your, you know, creative vein. How do we, how do we help each other do that? That's what a producer does for sure, or a good producer. That's so interesting, man, because sometimes in bands, it seems like people are so focused on just outshining people or making it me, 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 me. I think that it's rare to hear of a band where the attitude is, let's make the team as uh, sick as possible. Yeah, well, that that's came from every record that we've done there's always a couple of songs that we all know we came together on in a way that is different than the rest of the record. Some songs, it's like, all right, that song was more Garza, this song was more me. These couple songs were literally all of us came together really, really well. And those are the songs that people love the most. So, and, and it's, it's, it's how it's worked, every record. The ones that we figure out how to lift each other up, and we're writing a song that it's like when... Alex is going to go play this song on drums. Like Alex loves playing this song on drums and he's fucking going to be able to smash it. And every song that has made an effect, you know, on our career are the ones that they blend all of our styles really, really well. And that's what like, you know, lights the fire for us to continue writing music. We know that there's still areas that we haven't been able to let's say, you know, artistic areas, we haven't been able to exploit of each other's abilities. You know, like we want it, we can bring out these things that, you know, we don't even really know what they are yet because we haven't done them yet. They're still there. Still got to, still got to bring them out. One last topic I want to bring up because I don't want to take up your whole day, but I'm curious about this. We were talking about producers. You've worked with a bunch and there's a lot of great metal producers out there. So, you know, there's lots of different options. What is it about a producer that makes you say, this is the dude we're going with, this person gets it? It's a pretty easy thing to read someone's energy. With us, we've sat down with tons of producers and had interviews and talked to them about writing a record. And usually you can just kind of tell if there's someone that's there to try to get a gig. You know, if they're just trying trying to lock in a gig and, and, you know, secure some work, it's pretty easy to tell if someone is just on that tip. Every producer that we've ever worked with has been someone that we've talked to them and it's like, okay, this guy wants to work on our record. This guy wants to do a record with us. 
and not every, you know, not everybody is that guy. Evitz was the the dude. I remember sitting down with him where it's like, oh my God, I've never met somebody that wants to work with us so bad. Like he wants, he wants to do our record, you know? And that's why we've done so many records with him. But that's what it really comes down to is like someone that they want to build a relationship with you and get to know you and, and, you know, figure out how to, how to, how to make our ideas above and beyond better than we could have ever done it without them. Cause you know, over the years, you know, you learn to produce yourself. You learn to be, you know, the band produces themselves and every band is like, Oh, one of these days we're just going to produce our own shit. We don't need a producer. Everybody says it. You know, when you find that dude where you're like, damn, like we need this guy involved. Like he's got the, he's got the energy and he's, he's ready to fucking slam it out. That's really what it's all about. Finding the dude that wants, they want to build the pyramid. Awesome, dude. Well, Mark, I think it's a good place to stop it. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been awesome getting to meet you and awesome getting to talk to you. Hell yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. 